We're going to look this morning at John chapter 19. We'll find in our Bibles, book of John chapter 19. We have been working our way through this gospel. And as the theme of our songs have been, and as the quartet just sang, we have been focusing upon the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of Glory, as was just sung, and looking upon that old rugged cross. Of course, tonight in our evening service, we will observe the Lord's table. But we will look again at John 19, and we're in those final hours of Christ's earthly life. Of course, there will be the resurrection and the 40 days post-resurrection, but we're in those final hours as Christ is there on the cross. And we bring our eyes to John 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. We see two of the statements of Christ while he was on the cross right here in this passage. Up just a few verses to verses 26 and 27, we see where Jesus cared for his earthly mother, his mother Mary, woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple John, uh, the disciple John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, behold thy mother. So we see a couple of other statements by Jesus while he was on the cross. And so today I want us to look at, I want us to go back and we'll compare scripture with scripture. We'll look at uh, in Matthew and Luke and also here in John, we'll look at the seven last sayings of Jesus. Some of whom we have touched on or we have touched on as we have worked through this account and as we have been looking at perspectives of the cross. We've looked at various perspectives as God loves the world and he cares for each individual We will see in the seven statements, these seven last sayings of Christ, we will continue to see his love for the world, his love for the individual sinner, and his desire that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we go from John 19 to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And in verses 33 and 34, we read, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ's words of forgiveness while hanging on the cross They did not immediately grant everyone salvation. This was not a cry of Christ from the cross of universalist salvation. It was simply Christ expressing his love for sinners, even for the very ones responsible for murdering him that day, for executing him on the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. There were various individuals and groups who participated in this unjust trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And they were at different levels of knowledge and understanding of the gravity of their actions and of their attitudes toward Christ. 
We know from the different individuals such as Pilate, Annas, Caiaphas, with political power, with religious power. In the case of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, much knowledge of the Old Testament, much knowledge of the Scripture, and yet their attitude toward Christ was one of hatred. Pilate, looking at Christ from a purely political and selfish standpoint, knowing that he had an innocent man in front of him, but constantly politically posturing to the point that he gave the order and delivered Christ to be crucified, trying to wash the blood of Christ from his hands, though he was still guilty before a holy God for his unjust murder of the Son of God. So there were these individuals, these groups, there were various levels of knowledge and understanding of the gravity of their actions and their attitudes toward Christ, some with significant knowledge of the Scriptures, some with great exposure to Christ's perfect life, having heard Him publicly preaching and teaching. Some, like Pilate, maybe had very little, like the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, maybe had very little knowledge of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number number 8 we read, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would have crucified, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Think about that for a moment. They did not all fully understand the gravity of their actions, their attitudes toward the Son of God. But all were responsible as sinners, such as us, who were not there that day, who were not in the shoes of a Pilate, who were not in the halls of judgment like a Caiaphas or a Herod Antipas, or on a religious council like the Sanhedrin, but all, as sinners, we are responsible for our sin. And as sinners by birth, by nature, and by choice, All of these individuals, just like us, are responsible because it was for our sin, the sins of the world, that Christ died on the cross. As Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, there were some immediate answers to that prayer. The thief on the cross, who had begun to mock Christ and then, a short time later, turned from mocking Him and in conviction he called out to Christ in saving faith, remember me. We think of the centurion who was no doubt responsible for those Roman soldiers who had been involved in the actual, probably nailing of the spikes into Christ's wrists and into his ankles, his legs, who no doubt had been responsible for the Roman soldiers who would go and they would break the legs and who had, in the case of Christ, because he was already dead, they did not break any of his bones, they pierced him through with that sword. That spear, that centurion got saved. That thief on the cross got saved. And then as the bodies were taken down, as we looked at last week, and the two disciples, the secret disciples, at least up to this point, we even see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus publicly identifying themselves with Christ, giving testimony of their faith and trust in Him as their Savior. And then, of course... Forty days after the resurrection, thousands would be saved at Pentecost. 
In Acts 6 and verse 7, religious leaders would be saved in large numbers and the church would be born in just a short time after Acts chapter 2, another 5,000 were added to the church. In a sense, all genuine believers are an answer to this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because those who see their sinfulness and recognize their need for the Savior and believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord, they experience forgiveness of sins and receive the free gift of salvation. And that is in the heart of Christ as He's dying on the cross. He has that spirit, He has that attitude, He has that love for the sinner. A spirit and attitude of forgiveness out of a heart of love for the sinner that none would perish but that all would come to repentance. It is this spirit and attitude of genuine love and desire for sinners to be saved that is ultimately the reason any of us come to Christ because we don't seek Him on our own. We only love Him because He first loved us. He sought after us. He said that if He be lifted up, He draws all men unto Himself. So every sinner is responsible before God for how he or she responds to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 in verse number 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, the suffering Savior, the suffering servant, obviously prophetic of Christ. And his crucifixion, his death on the cross. And in Isaiah 53, in verse 12, as we just read, he made intercession for the transgressors. In a sense, even as Christ was crying out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was praying for you and for me, who have trusted Christ as our Savior. What an incredible thought. John 3 and verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 4, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. We see the heart, we see the desire, the forgiving spirit of our Savior, Jesus Christ, while on the cross and in those verses, those passages. So the offer of salvation through forgiveness of one's sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, this offer of salvation is made to all. Revelation 22 and verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. We just read in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, in verse number 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Christ pleads for the sinner to be reconciled to him. He is doing the ministry of reconciliation. He is, is we are, are so foreign to this concept, because when we have a disagreement especially in our culture today, when we have a difference, when there is a breach in our culture, we're taught to drop a nuclear bomb on the other person and to annihilate them and to do so if we can in the most embarrassing, the most headline 
approach that we possibly can so that we, we can make them look as horrible as they possibly can and make us look as great as we possibly can. That's the culture in which we live. That's the spirit in which our culture teaches us. Annihilate them. The enemy is to be annihilated. But that's not the spirit of our Savior. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is pursuing the sinner. Be ye reconciled unto me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ezekiel chapter number 18, we read that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires for the wicked to repent. That's the command in Acts 17 and verse 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, God is calling you. He is commanding you to repent. He is calling you to salvation. He is pleading with you to be reconciled unto him. He wants you to be saved. We see that spirit of love, that attitude of love. We see the desire of our Savior for sinners to be saved in that first statement from the cross. But we also see, secondly, in Luke 23, in verses 39 through 43, we see a salvation promise to the thief on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We see the forgiving spirit of Christ in that first statement. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But we also see salvation promise in the thief coming to Christ on that cross. Luke 23 and verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So both thieves at the beginning, when they're first hung there, they begin to mock Christ. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost, thou, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? So there's a change. By Luke 23, 39 and 40, one of those thieves has now become convicted. He's seeing. There's different things that we can ascertain that we can kind of maybe gather from what was going on that that day at that time maybe the thief seeing the way Christ so innocently and so willingly had given himself to the cruel injustice the torture and now the crime of hanging the son of god on a cross to die Maybe in all of that, the thief, seeing that Christ was not cursing his executioners, was not crying out for his innocence and all the injustice that had been done to him. Maybe the way that the thief had maybe observed other people dying on the cross and their cries of torment and injustice and curses and all kinds of probably horrible things said about the executioners. Christ did none of that. Possibly through all that, the thief came under conviction. We know it was, even on the cross, God drawing him. As the thief changed his perspective, changed his mind, even about his own sin. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart about our sin. Repentance is not some work of some action 
That is some work of grace. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. We see our sin differently. We see our sin as an offense before a holy God as the transgression of the law. And the thief saw that. And in verse 41, he says, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. He saw his sinfulness and he saw a holy God. He saw Christ the Savior. And in the fear of God and in repentance, he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We talked about the thief on the cross and our perspectives of the cross, so I won't go into elaborate detail, but we see in just a few short sentences a thief coming under conviction, seeing his sin, repenting of that sin, and calling upon the Savior. And by faith alone, in Christ alone, he enters into glory that very day as he cries out to Christ, Remember me. He calls him Jesus. He calls him Lord. And he says, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the promise is today. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So we see forgiving spirit, we see salvation promise. And then thirdly, the third saying from the cross is found in John 19 in verse 26, where we have looked at in our previous weeks and looking at perspectives of the cross, we see woman, behold thy son, in verse 27 of John 19, Behold thy mother, he said to the disciple John. So again, even on the cross, Christ was concerned for others. And he demonstrated his compassion. As we've talked about already, as the firstborn son, it was his responsibility to provide care for his mom and dad. At this point, it's our understanding that Joseph had passed away. Joseph was dead. Christ's earthly father stepfather, obviously Joseph not being his biological father, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But as far as we know, Joseph is, is dead and gone by this point. He's not mentioned anymore since the early days of Christ's life. At this point, we understand that Jesus' brethren, his half-siblings, again, as we've talked about, that Mary is not the mother of God. Mary is not venerated here. She's not the perpetual version. She's not co-mediatrix or whatever the titles are. Simply Jesus, knowing that his half-siblings are not believers, we know from John 7 that they were not believers. They would not trust Christ as their Savior until after the resurrection. And they are in, I believe, with the the other disciples uh, later after the resurrection and identified as believers. But at this point, they're not saved people. So he wouldn't turn his, the care of his mother over to them. He has the firstborn son. Even in his dying hours, dying minutes, he is showing compassion for his mother as the firstborn son, making sure she is cared for. And so Jesus, we see his heart of compassion. As we've spent some time already looking at the fact that God cares for women, that the Bible, that biblical Christianity is not a misogynistic, chauvinistic book. 
Christianity, biblical Christianity, gives equal dignity to men and women, male and female, created he them. And as God showed in, or as Jesus, excuse me, showed care for his mother, he is even demonstrating God's love for both genders, for both sexes. And we have a culture today that is perverting all of that. And I don't have to go into great detail, but there is such perversion and disruption or man's attempt to disrupt God's design, God's creative order. And we see so clearly that the women loved Jesus. The women were drawn to him and were ministering to his needs, even as he went to the cross. And Christ gives an example of caring for his mother, the respect, the honor that we even see in the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. And we're losing that in our culture as moms and dads are treated like, or called the old man and the old woman. And treated with such disrespect. And one of the signs of the times is disobedience. And the disrespect for parents. And we see that all throughout our culture. And I've been in education, I've been in the ministry, and I've seen young people who treat their mom and dad in such awful ways. Little kids who say such disrespectful things to mom and dad. And the mom and dad make excuses for it. It's a shame in our culture where the, the dads are made out to be the dorks and the weirdos and the irresponsible and the arrogant and the out-to-lunch kinds of characters in most of the sitcoms and shows and movies. And now we see in our culture a disrespect for the role of women. And we see such a horrible perversion of God's creative order and design with the LGBT movement and the transgendering and all that goes with it. Even where pregnancy is considered a poison, a disease. Where motherhood is talked about negatively. Where being a mom and having the responsibility in a very clear and obvious way, not just in God's call and command, but in the nurturing, relational design of a woman as a mom has a bond with her own children in a unique way that is being disrupted through abortion and even through the role of a mother being talked about as being career-ending in disrupting the success. I'm going to say right now that my mom is an extremely successful woman. Not because of anything that has to do with me, because I am a sinner saved by grace. But I'm thankful for the success of my mom who invested in my life and my sister's life, for, for whom I will always be indebted. My wife is a success in helping nurture and raise our children. And I'm indebted to her for the rest of my life. We have seen moms in their nurturing and their relationship and their role as the caregiver of their children and as the helper to their husband, as the helpmeet and as the complementer to her husband, provide tremendous blessings and have been extremely influential in the lives of so many people. And we have testimony to that right here in this room of so many. 
And there have been preachers and missionaries. There have been faithful Christians who give testimony to the role of their mom who was involved in their life and has been very successful. Oh, maybe not have all of the career and all the, 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 the net, nest eggs and the investments, but very, very successful as a mom, as a wife, and influencing a new uh, up-and-coming generation for godliness, for Jesus Christ, and been a tremendous asset to her husband. Many times we see that men, when they lose their, their spouse, many times we see men remarry. And it reminds us of how much we as men need our wives, how much we as men need a woman. <laughs> and that being called to be the helpmeet, to be his helper, as Genesis explains, is a high calling that God himself even says, I am your helper, Psalm 121. What a high calling. And yet, we see in our culture today that the high calling of motherhood is considered something negative, and that having a child is a poison, and pregnancy is a disease. That is not at all what Scripture teaches. And we see even in Christ's final hours, he's making sure his mother is cared for, and he is honoring her. So we have seen, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have seen his forgiving spirits here in this seven sayings of Christ on the cross, his last sayings. We've also seen the salvation promise to that thief, and then we see this provision for his mother. But then fourthly, the fourth saying of Christ on the cross is found in Matthew chapter 27. This fourth saying Fourth last saying of Christ on the cross, we turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Now we understand in the chronology of the crucifixion that from noon until 3 o'clock, understanding the Roman clock and the Jewish clock, understanding that Christ died around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, with the new Jewish day beginning around 6 p.m. at sunset. So on that Friday, we're understanding, according to Matthew 27 and verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Using the Jewish time, and Matthew wrote from a Jewish perspective that Jesus Christ is king. That was the theme of his book. He wrote a very Jewish gospel in declaring Jesus Christ is king. And in verse 45, there's darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That would be noon to three. So for that three-hour time span, there is darkness, an unusual darkness, middle of the day. This is not up in the far north or the far south near the poles where there can be those times of darkness. We've been in northern Canada and it was daylight until like 10 o'clock at night. We're trying to go to bed and it's bright as what seems like an afternoon sun at 10 o'clock at night. There are places in the world like that. This is not the case. Middle East, near the equator, around 12 hours of daylight and around 12 hours of darkness roughly. 
6 p.m., roughly the sunset time. This is noon to 3, a time of prime daylight, and there's darkness for three hours. And most commentators agree that it is during this three-hour time period that the wrath of God is poured out on our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is hard to fathom. I have a hard time watching my children experience pain. There's a part of life that involves pain, physical pain, and also there are maturing pains that our children have to go through. And we can't always be their guide and protector. We we can be their guide. We can't always be their protector. You've heard about helicopter parents and then the hovercraft parents. And then have you heard about the lawnmower parents? That they mow through all the obstacles in their child's life. So they started up here, and then they come down here, and now they're actually mowing away all the obstacles so their children have only the nicest and easiest path through life. Well, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? We can't protect our kids from everything. There's a measure of maturing pain that our children have to go through, and sometimes we as parents, we have to show that tough love and help them through those times. But my point is this, that God the Father pours out his wrath on God the Son apparently for three hours. This is a God choosing to bruise his own son, as Isaiah 53 describes. It's hard for us to fathom. As a father, I I, I have a hard time even thinking of what it would be like for me to allow and give permission and to pour my wrath out on my own child, on my own son, in such a way. This does not take away at all from the holiness of God, because this wrath of God on on His Son, Jesus Christ, is the wrath of God on sin, on my sin, on your sin, on our sin. This is the wrath of God on the sins of the world, being poured out, because Jesus Christ hath become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So in Matthew 27, in verse 46, we read, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a quote from Psalm 22. The whole psalm is a messianic psalm. We don't have time to read it now. But in the pain and in the torture and in the darkness and in the horrors of that moment, in a way that I cannot possibly even describe, God was estranged from God. The wrath of God was poured out on His Son for the sins of mankind. And Christ cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is a breach in the Trinity that I cannot fully comprehend or understand. It is a suffering and a pain and an experience beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. The very Son of God experiencing the wrath of God for the sin of mankind as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin. 
Such that in Matthew 27 and verse 51, at this moment that Christ died, an earthquake occurred that was powerful enough to split rocks and cause people to come up out of their graves. Another, indica- another indication of the judgment of God on sin. And that earthquake was a sort of climax or conclusion or exclamation point to this three hours of darkness where God's wrath is poured out on his son as Christ took the punishment of sin for mankind. Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God against sin. That's where we get the soteriological word propitiation, the satisfaction of Christ's death, that it satisfied the wrath of God against sin. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah 53 and verse number 10, because it satisfied God's wrath against sin. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As we just read, and as I've quoted already, he became sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As Christ bore the sins of the world, he also bore the wrath of God for that sin. God did not cease. He never ceased to love his son. But he forsook him as our substitute. There is in justification, there is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ credited to our account so that God can declare us not guilty. We'll get to that a little bit more, but we see it even here. As we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. 1 John 2 and verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For just that short amount of time, there was a divine estrangement as The wrath of God was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, for our sin, who became sin for us. In a way that I cannot fully comprehend or describe, but I accept by faith and I trust his word. To provide salvation for us. So that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of sin for all eternity. Because that's what we deserve. Christ took the wrath of God against sin so that we would not have to experience it in a place called hell for all eternity. That's why each individual must respond in repentance and faith and trust Christ as one's Savior and be justified and make salvation efficacious because until one repents and believes and receives Christ as Savior, they will enter into eternity and 
suffer the wrath of God on them for their sin for all eternity. But that's not what God desires. God desires that all would come to repentance. Who's not willing that any should perish. As we just read just a short time ago, who, would all, who, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Chris Anderson in his hymn, number 279 in our hymn books, I think that in this hymn he puts it so well, what Christ experienced that day on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Chris Anderson writes, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I accursed and left alone. I as though he embraced and welcomed home. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. But by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. It's overwhelming what Christ did for us on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in John 19, we go back to John 19 in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. In our perspectives of the cross, we talked about how the soldiers gave him a sponge dipped in vinegar and using a reed of hyssop, put it to Christ's lips to moisten them. This was done to sustain life, to increase the torture and the pain. This was different from the wine mixed with gall from Matthew 27 and verse 34 that was used to deaden pain. Christ was experiencing as much human suffering and torture as we could possibly imagine. Even as he thirsted, we see his humanity, but his willingness to suffer at even greater lengths for you and for me. And then we come to the sixth final saying of Christ on the cross. And that is down in John 19 and verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Literally, that phrase means paid in full. The idea of a stamp being put on a document saying there is no more that is owed. There is no more that is due. Paid in full. It is finished. He died for all, as we just read in 1 John 2 and verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world." Now, not every person receives Christ as his or her Savior. But if every person who ever lived received Christ as his or her Savior, Christ's sacrifice would be sufficient 
to save everyone. But we know not everybody trusts Christ. Not everybody turns from their sin and receives the free gift of salvation and looks to Christ in saving faith. As God commands and calls them to do and longs for them and pleads for them to do. But still we see that the price of sin is paid in full. The redemption, our redemption is paid in full. Christ's death paid the penalty for sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He paid the penalty. So each person will either suffer the punishment for his or her sin for all eternity in a place called hell or repent of that sin and trust in Christ as one Savior. Everyone must come to that point of decision regarding Jesus Christ. The efficacy of Christ's payment is applied upon receiving Christ in saving faith. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So Christ was our substitute. This is the vicarious atonement, the substitutionary atonement. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. They only pictured, they only foreshadowed what Christ would do in making atonement for the sins of mankind upon the cross. He was our substitute. His death fulfilled all the types and symbols of the sacrificial system in the Mosaic law and made atonement for the sins of mankind and paid the ransom to God for man's sin. Christ's death on the cross was not a paying of a ransom to Satan. No, it was a paying of a ransom to God for our sin. Incredible and overwhelming to consider. It is finished. And then finally, the seventh saying of Christ on the cross is the commitment of his life. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. That takes us back to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we conclude here in the message this morning from Luke 23 in verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Christ was murdered by wicked men. Acts 2, verse 23. We've studied the account together on Sunday mornings as we've worked worked our way through the Gospel of John. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, as we've seen from Isaiah 53. God's wrath was poured out on Christ as he bore the sins of the world. And yet Christ also gave his life willingly. John 10, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says that he gives up his life, that no man could take it from him. He gives his life. All three of those statements are true, that Christ was murdered by wicked men, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and that he gave his life willingly. All three of those statements are true. Though it's hard for us to get our minds around, our finite minds have a hard time holding on to all three of these truths at the same time, but nevertheless, they are still true. The Bible teaches them. And Jesus Christ submissively bowed his head there on the cross and gave up his spirit willingly. John 19 and verse number 30, where we were earlier, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The ghost, of course, meaning his spirit. And we see here 
that Christ willingly and submissively gave up his life. Does that mean that God died? Of course not. God did not die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Christ's sinless body, ravaged by the torturous actions of man, having experienced the sinless infirmities, including pain, including thirst, including fatigue and hunger, all of those sinless infirmities, as Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, his human flesh died, literally, physically. He did not just go into soul sleep. He did not just pass out from the torture and the pain. No, he died physically, biologically. But God did not die. In in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, we know that Christ, as he gave up the ghost, his spirit remained with God. He remained fully God. He never ceased to be God. Though the wrath of the Father was poured out on him, and Christ called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see here the very Spirit of Christ remaining with God, though absent from the physical human body that was dead and that was buried, that would eventually, as he would rise from the grave, would be united in a glorified body with his spirits. And we'll have to talk about that as we get into John 20 and beyond. But as we close here this morning, we are reminded of the great sacrifice, once again, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we never get over it. May it renew us every day when the trials of life come, when the difficulties come, when the kids are bad and the dog is staying up all night and all the other things that go on. In the sickness and in the infirmities and the pain and the trials and the stress, may we always come back to the glories of the cross, and glory in the cross of Christ where he suffered and died for you and for me, for our sins, where he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. These seven statements are a reminder of God's love for us, the great sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf and our need to love him more and to serve him greater and to share the glorious gospel, the gospel of reconciliation with others, that they too may be saved, may receive the forgiveness of sins and be a child of God and enter into his presence one day as a saved, as a saved person. May we be renewed in that zeal and that love for the Lord and desire to serve him, to love him more and to serve him better and to share that gospel of reconciliation, the, reconcil- the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled. Lord, we are overwhelmed. Lord, we are truly grateful for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, who became our substitute, took the penalty of our sin, who paid the debt of our sin in full. We owed a debt we could not pay. You paid a debt that you did not owe. Lord, you did that on our behalf. Lord, if there's someone here today who has not received you as their Savior, who is continuing to live in their sin, 
Lord, may today be the day that they repent, that they obey the command to repent and to turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. Lord, as believers, maybe we've been living lackluster lives. Maybe we've not been dealing with sin. Maybe we've been just apathetic and we've maybe lost or left our first love. And today we need to be renewed once again in our love for you and our desire to love you and to serve you. Maybe we've been looking too much at our circumstances and instead of looking at our Savior. And Lord, help us to be renewed in our love for you that we might go out from here and change people to love you more, to serve you better, and to share this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with others that they too may be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn in our hymnals as we did last